We can set all these things aside and love one another. Okay, today we're starting a new series, the book of Acts. And I'm doing the introduction. And the name of it is, It's More Than History. Now, usually, when I speak, it's a combination of teaching and preaching. Here's the distinction. Teaching informs the mind, and it's absolutely essential. Preaching moves the heart and the will, and it's absolutely essential. But they're two different things with two different purposes. But coming to do the introduction to the book of Acts, today's going to be teaching. So I want you to be emotionally prepared. It's like shredded wheat. It's dry but nourishing. All right? So you're in for something really good for you, but it won't be as passionate or as exciting as what usually happens. Are you okay with that? Can we have some education today? Can we do a little education and then have a little passion at the end? Hmm? Fruit Loops. <laughs> we'll start with shredded wheat and we'll end with uh, Cocoa Puffs. All right. It's more than a history. Before we get to the main themes of the book of Acts, and we're going to cover the main themes today, and then we're going to uh, fill them out and speak about them through the rest of the series. Before we get to that, having some idea of background, how did this book come to be? Who authored it? What were his purposes? One of the um, principal understandings of exegesis or bringing the Bible into our understanding today is knowing what it said then. Whatever the writer meant then, it can't be something other than that to us. In other words, whatever he meant then, that's what it means to us. We can't change that just because our historical context or our cultural context changes. So we need to know what he intended. What was he trying to say to his audience? Then we can move it forward through time and through culture and figure out what it saying to us what it's saying to us today. Does that make any sense? It can't mean now what it didn't mean then. That's a principle of biblical interpretation. Some of the worst mistakes we make with the Bible are ignoring that fact. So background for a book, why he wrote it, who wrote it, uh, where did it go, how long did it take, how long did Acts take to write? What period of years does the book of Acts cover? Take a guess. Six? Hmm? Thirty years. Thirty years. We read it through like it happened in a week and a half. Do you know that, that the book of Acts is the laboratory in which the church is being formed? And when he starts writing it in the beginning, the, the events in the beginning... They don't have the same understanding of their faith in the beginning as they did 30 years later. This is foundational. This is definitional. What we call Christianity today, they didn't understand then. They didn't have a clue. If you'd have gone into one of their early meetings of the disciples, maybe in the upper room or as soon as Jesus ascended and went to heaven, and you'd said, well, fellas, this is what Christianity is, and you'd laid it out, they would have thought you were crazy they probably would have thought you were demonic. In this book is contained the formation of the church. Who we are today largely comes about because of the events in this book. It's pretty exciting stuff. So who wrote this book? Luke. What was his occupation? He was a doctor. And this is his sequel to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke is the story of Jesus. But this now is the story of Jesus' church. What did the world do with Jesus? What did the followers of Jesus do with Jesus? How did they apply him to their lives and their community? This is the story of the birth of the church. Now, it was written to who? Any guesses? A guy named Theophilus. And Luke says, 
he uses a title. He uses a description of Theophilus. He says, to the most excellent Theophilus. Now, right away, this tells us two things. First of all, is Theophilus a Jewish name? No. It's a Greek name, a Roman name. So he's writing to somebody who's a convert to Christianity outside of Judaism, which is an interesting thing. And then he says, most excellent Theophilus, which suggests to us, and most people agree, that he was a significant person in Roman society, maybe of royal blood, maybe of very high standing in government. He was a significant person. And he's the same person that Luke wrote his first book to. So theologians say Luke was writing probably to his publisher, probably to maybe his patron, someone who um, financed Luke's ministry, probably the spread of his books. Theophilus is going to take this. He's going to read it personally, but he's going to see it in in a much bigger context. He has, in effect, a trust here. He's been entrusted with something, and he's going to see to it that this book reaches the other churches. So there's a mission involved even in this book. Luke makes it very clear in his first book, in the the book of the Gospel of Luke, that he's being extremely careful regarding the accuracy of what he reports. He says, quote, I've carefully investigated everything from the beginning. I just find it interesting that In the writing of the New Testament, two characters that are huge in the writing of the New Testament are Luke and Paul. They're both highly educated men. They're both very, very careful about their history and their facts. This care is evident as well, and it's bolstered by the fact that Luke was present for Paul For many of the events, in fact, most of the events in the book of Acts about Paul, Luke was present when it happened. Isn't that great source material? You're not going on hearsay here. You have an eyewitness person who is present for almost all of these events in Paul's life, and he's recording it as they go. Folks, that's credibility. I practiced law for 13 years. You were looking for this kind of witness when you present a case. This is your star witness. He saw it. He was there for all of it. He can give first-hand testimony. It's superb, superb evidence. We have in this book absolutely superb evidence of what took place 2,000 years ago. Isn't that cool? I mean, talk about credibility. Luke was with Paul while Paul was imprisoned in Rome awaiting trial. Luke was with him then. Luke was present when Paul wrote several of his epistles, letters to the churches. In fact, it's not a stretch to say that given Paul's health and advancing age, Luke may very well have written with his own hand, taking the dictation that Paul made for many of his letters. There's no one in antiquity who understands Paul's theology better than Luke. And Luke gives us the play-by-play background for the very events that shape and mold Paul's theology. And Paul's theology is the only reason we're sitting here today. Isn't that fascinating? They think that because Luke was present with Paul while Paul was awaiting trial in Rome, that one of the purposes for the writing of the book of Acts, was to provide a court brief for Paul to use when he goes on trial in Rome for his life. In other words, when he's asked by the the Roman judge, what gives you the right to say this? And what is this business about you got in trouble with the Jews for heresy? What's this all about anyway? And Paul can say, this is my story. This is it. It's all written out. This is the whole story of my life and purpose and what brings me to this place today, your honor. So it may very well have been not simply a letter to the churches, but a letter to the Roman officials as well. It was a court brief. Now, you know, Luke's got to be very, very careful about that. If you're going to present this as evidence in a court of law, you better be right about every single point that you write about. And you better have your history and events correct. 
And he did. Another reason that we can look at this and say this is incredible evidence for the earliest days of the church. For a lot of reasons, we conclude that very serious care went into the writing of this firsthand account of some of the most formative days in the history of the church. Exciting stuff. I said this earlier, but I want to repeat it. Christianity, quote unquote, the definition, Christianity in the full understanding of what we have today was not fully formed when Luke wrote the book of Acts. This is transformational times. The book spans 30 years of the development and formation of what we today call the church. Back then, they wouldn't have called it the church. There was no such idea in their minds when the book of Acts was written. They were just a community of Jews who are working out what Jesus means to them in practice. And then Paul goes out with his revelation of the understanding of salvation as a free gift of God, not that you work for, that you simply receive. And that that is a bomb going off in Jerusalem. It has huge implications. It's the foundational moment of what the church is going to become. And Luke covers that. Acts gives us a first-hand history of how our faith came to exist as a religion apart from Judaism. It shows us how many of the central ideas and doctrines came into existence. Without the book of Acts, most of the epistles of Paul would be without a context to aid us in understanding them correctly. Seriously. In fact, there's... One of the best, I wish we had time to do it, but by watching the missionary journeys of Paul and the order of the churches in which he went to and what happened within them, you can see the development in Paul's thinking of the whole point of our faith being about power, not words. It's what happened in city to city to city that developed his, I wish I had time to do this, sometime we should, but it's absolutely incredible Paul failed miserably in Athens. Athens was the place he should have felt most comfortable in. He was an intellectual. He was going to where they sit around all day drinking their lattes, talking about the latest philosophies and ideas. He was going to the place where intellectually and humanly he really belonged. And he went in there and he preached the best sermon he could preach. And many people say his sermon about the gods of a of Athens and the unknown God. They say it's the high water mark of preaching within the Bible. He taught what many say was the best message he could preach. There were no converts there. There was no church planted. It was a complete and abysmal failure. And then he goes to Corinth, having had that experience, and what does he say? He says, I don't come to you with wise words or a great sermon. I come to you with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit so that your faith will not rest on somebody's eloquence to pitch to you, but will rest on an experience and demonstration of the very power of God. You know why he said that? Because Athens was a complete bust. He just failed to do it through human potential. Hello? The Christian life is not made real through human potential but rather through a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what developed Paul's understanding. It came right out of his his own life. And the book of Acts illuminates his life. So when he writes to a community and tells them something, we get an idea of why. Isn't Isn't that cool? People, context is always important. So here's the four main purposes that are evident in the book of Acts. The first one is, and this is not in in ascending or descending order of importance. These are just four main purposes for why he wrote the book. To present a history of the birth and growth of the church. This was a new entity and a new theological concept they were dealing with. So he's letting people know, why do we believe what we believe? What's the context for this? Number two To give a defense of why the early Christians believed what they did about Jesus. We take so for granted our beliefs about Jesus. But if they walked into a synagogue and gave their 
belief of who Jesus is, they would be stoned. It was heresy to the Jews and it was foolishness to the Romans. Someone's got to explain to the world why we believe what we believe about Jesus. You guys were so immune to the wonder of Jesus. The idea that God, the creator of the universe, the timeless one, the all-knowing, omnipresent, the sum total of everything that exists, the fountainhead for all creation, would choose to come down to earth in living human flesh to communicate himself to us and then to die for us. That's crazy. It's so crazy, I believe it's true. You couldn't cook up a more bizarre, idiotic religion if you tried. If, look, if you want to go out to suck people into a religion and you're making a new religion, you don't come up with something so unbelievably crazy that you'd have to drop acid to buy into it. Do you follow what I'm saying? It's the outlandish absurdity of it that suggests to me it's probably true. They could never cook up something like this because they'd sit around and say, no one's going to believe that. And then they experience him. The power of God comes and expresses itself in human form. And even then they've got questions. Then he dies and he gets resurrected and there's no more questions in the room. Now they're convinced and they go out and they tell the world. But they need an explanation. Because they're being attacked on the one hand by the Jews as heretics. And they're being ridiculed and mocked as, as, as nutcases by the Romans. Acts is their story This is why we believe what we believe. To give a defense of why the early Christians believed what they did about Jesus. Number three, to provide a guide to the early church in order to keep it on track with the teachings of Jesus and with its mission to the non-Jewish world. We've got to remember that Paul's mission to take salvation through faith, this radical, crazy idea, to take that to the Gentile world was heresy. As far as Judaism was concerned and foolishness to the Romans. And again, we view this history through the lens of our present day where Christianity has become a world religion dominated countries all over the world. Our history is called A.D. We see everything through a Christian lens. And so we can't understand that the early church and its understanding of salvation by grace was minuscule, insignificant compared to the religions and the philosophies that surrounded it. I had a friend come down from Canada for the Super Bowl, and we were sitting outside last night, um, several of us talking. And in the middle of the conversation, we heard a bunch of coyotes go off. Do you know how the coyote, like the coyotes are, are circling a rabbit or something? And they've been quiet up until the kill. And then it's, you know, the, the yelping. And it's crazy. And it's loud. And my friend from Canada goes, what is that? And I said, well, that's just a, the, a bunch of coyotes have surrounded a rabbit or something, and, and they're coming in for the kill, and they're in a frenzy. It's a feeding frenzy. They're going nuts. Oh, he said. I said, America's a violent country. <laughs> I'm kidding. I didn't say that. Look, I want you to picture that little rabbit surrounded by an entire pack of coyotes, and they're circling in to kill it and destroy it. That is what Christianity looked like with the surrounding philosophies of the day and the surrounding religions. It was nothing. It was completely insignificant. It was 12 guys surrounded by nations that wanted to end their little camping trip.
So Acts explains why we believe what we believe about Jesus and about salvation by grace. And this is the story. This is the history. This is how come we're who we, who we are. And this little church, this fragile little rabbit surrounded by all these coyotes, needs as much guidance as it can get if it's going to succeed and survive. And the book of Acts is that guidance. And the letters that come out of Paul's life is what has held the church together through its formative infancy so it can survive birth and survive the fragility that comes afterwards until it becomes strong. Now, finally, we arrive at the central purpose, in my opinion. The book of Acts explains how this fragile, frightened group of uneducated blue-collar fishermen took their new understanding of salvation by grace from Jerusalem all the way to Rome, planting churches everywhere they went until it grew into the dominant religion of the known world. And the point is this. This kind of growth and transformation is not a work of human potential. It must have been a work of God. And as... Historians and theologians from many religions have studied Christianity and its growth. The one reason that they will concede that it was a work of God is this fact. There's no other explanation for it when you take a bunch of losers in a back country, dumpy little place, illiterate fishermen, and in two generations it's dominating Within a within hundred, couple hundred years, it's dominating the entire known world. And by 300, it becomes the official religion of the Roman Empire. <laughs> I mean, they, this is a miracle. Historians view it as something unprecedented. How did this happen? There's got to be something more to it than human potential. It's accepted by many as a proof for the existence of the Christian God. How else? What, what can explain this kind of growth, this kind of courage, martyred, yet standing up for their faith? And this brings us to, I think, the central point. Some have said that the book of Acts should not be called the Acts of the Apostles. It should be called the Acts of the Holy Spirit. Well, I couldn't agree more. And this brings us to the greatest injustice which is done to the book of Acts by elements within our faith. When I grew up, I was taught that the book of Acts was simply a history book, that the events portrayed within it were impossible today, that the power which was displayed in it no longer exists. And so we can derive good lessons about conduct and church organization and community and things like this. We can, we can draw these conclusions out of the text, but that's all it is. It's just history. I was taught that the power displayed by the Holy Spirit through the early church was no longer necessary once the book about the power was complete. Let's let that sink in for a minute. I was taught that the power that the book is all about is no longer necessary once the book about the power is complete. Hello? Somehow, we got the idea that once you have a book about power, you no longer need the power the book describes. And I got to thinking, I need an analogy, and here's my analogy. This is like saying that once you've developed the menu for your new restaurant, you no longer need to prepare the food. Hello? Gosh. It is crazy. I'm going to go so far as to say I think it's a demonic deception. Doctrines taught by demons. That we could take something so marvelous and wonderful and turn it into mere history and dismiss it as such when the whole point of the book is about it. I didn't come here to preach to you with wise and persuasive words and a fancy oratory. I don't want to do that. I'm going to come with a demonstration of the Holy Spirit's power so that your faith 
will not rest upon wise words by a good orator, but will rather rest on having witnessed and experienced the power of God. Hello? No, no, this, this book is more than history. Much more. It's a manual. It's a description. It's an understanding. It's a theology of how the power of God functions in human lives today. You know, after I had my Acts experience in my own life, I found myself reading the book of Acts in a whole new way. I didn't come saying, oh boy, now that I've been touched by the Spirit, I'll have a new understanding of the book of Acts. That never dawned on me. I was filled with the Holy Spirit, had a power encounter that I couldn't deny. And then when I started reading the book of Acts, sort of just casually, I found myself saying, I've seen that. Oh, I saw that too. Oh yeah, that reminds me of this. (laughs) It was really, the book just exploded. It's like, oh my God, this is amazing. Lord, look what you're doing. Yeah, yeah, I know what that feels like. I actually said, I know what that feels like. I've seen that. I've, I've done that. I've felt that. Bam, the book's a good movie all of a sudden. The book of Acts is really simply the continuation of the ministry of Jesus. When he said this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And in those days, that was Rome. The deeds done by the early church were simply the same deeds they watched Jesus do. Without his power, they couldn't do his deeds. Without his deeds, the early church is nothing but ideas. One more competing religion in a world of bigger and stronger religions and philosophies. The power of the Holy Spirit is what distinguished our faith from all of the others. And this remains true today. And this is the principal value of the book of Acts. It continues the story of the Holy Spirit. How he's received, how he's activated in human life. The book of Acts is really a model of life in the Holy Spirit. The life we see in the book of Acts is the life we are to experience here and now. Not that we are to imitate every form or organization of the church, but that we're to move in the same power they did. And we need a manual to help us just as much as they needed a manual to help them. The book of Acts is that manual. Whoa. What do you want to do? For half an hour. We're done. Let's do some Q&A. This, I hope, has stirred up some things in you. Maybe some thoughts, some comments, maybe some questions, maybe some concerns, maybe some things that aren't clear. Sure. Okay. Yeah, but I want to differ with you on that. <laughs> Why don't you put put your comments on the record? <laughs> From what I understand in reading the book of Acts, one of the sign that you're saved and okay is speaking in other tongues okay so it took me a long while to get there but I knew that I knew Jesus it, it took I had one word and then it took a long time before I had the flow so I questioned my salvation initially because I was taught by right. a Pentecostal woman right so but then later on the other thing that was a truth that I didn't understand is that you can think it. 
In other words, I can think in tongues. It, it's in me. It, yeah. um, that was just the other thing. Okay. So I just want to say something about that. Um, the contemporary work of the Holy Spirit was Azusa Street, 1906, 1909, 1905, 1906, up to 1910. That was the restoration in our age of the work of the Holy Spirit. But the work of the Holy Spirit has been going on since church times right up until today. And not every outpouring of the Holy Spirit in church history has been characterized by speaking in tongues. Okay? That was the way it came in our age. But it's so interesting because... When I read the early writings of the Azusa Street Revival, and there's a wonderful book, uh, it's out of print, by Frank Bartleman, who was a witness to all of their earliest meetings. And he described the coming of the Holy Spirit into their meetings. Oh, the descriptions are just glorious. But what he described, the primary experience for those guys in those early William Seymour and the guys in the churches, those two churches in L.A. Frank Bartleman said this. The Holy Spirit would begin to manifest himself and make his presence known. And it was like waves of liquid love. That was the phrase he used, waves of liquid love that would come inside of you and wash through you and leave you so overcome with love that William Seymour had to hide his head in a box. He had, they'd set up a a pulpit, which was some packing crates, one on top of the other. And the back of the, the open part of the packing crates faced him. He was so overcome with the love of God that he thought it would embarrass the meetings and was too much for, for him to do publicly. So he'd get down on his knees and stick his head into the packing crate. The gift of tongues wasn't the number one experience in this. It was the love of God. Tongues is a useful gift, but it don't hold a candle to the love of God. The love of God is transforming. So when I look for evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, I'm glad when people speak in tongues. I was speaking in tongues under my breath while we were singing in worship half the time. But it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is that you have been filled with the love of God. That you have had a transformational experience of what it is. Oh, what manner of love the Father has lavished on us. That we would be called his children. And that's who you are. So I want us to keep The gift of tongues in the right perspective. Is it valuable? Yes. Should we all do it? I think so. But it's not the number one thing to seek. And it's not the deepest evidence of the work of God, of the Holy Spirit in the human heart. A transformed life of holiness. Of radical commitment. Of loving the unlovable and the people that really make you mad. That's miraculous. Thank you. The book of Corinthians, their problem was they had, they were, this is good. They were experiencing the power like crazy. All the evidence of the Holy Spirit's presence in their lives is there. But they've gone off on the power so much they've forgotten about love. And Paul has to correct them and say, guys, come on, let's get back to the best thing. The most excellent thing. The lasting thing, the eternal thing, certain things will pass away. Prophecy, this other stuff, pass away. But love? Right? Any more comments or questions? Get to that conclusion?
you will do greater deeds, Jesus said. Um, I, I, my personal opinion of how the church wandered away from the power of God is twofold. First of all, I think it has to do with institutionalization and pride. Once we, it's really funny. The worst thing that could happen to a church is to succeed by all of us doing our best. Let's say we had incredibly talented people. And we went out and we built a church with the best children's program in town, which is what draws everybody, and the best worship band in the region, and the most articulate, eloquent preachers, and the best everything. And the whole thing was just bathed in excellence. And everyone wanted to come because it's just such an excellent church. And it was organized perfectly. No one ever finished a sermon too early and had to bluff his way through the next half an hour. That never happened. As the second hand sweeps for the final stroke of 12, the service ends and everyone goes to lunch and no one's roast has ever been ruined in this church. That would be the biggest tragedy a church could experience. Because the church isn't a vehicle for our meeting our potential. It's not a display of human excellence. It is a display of the power of God. It's not about our potential. It's about his potential. Right? He is the only time he ever really gets to be displayed powerfully is when we're failing. Hello? He only takes over when we've done our best and it didn't work. The only time we pray for the sick is when the doctor says there's no hope. Hello? Get it? The church became maybe, I don't know, it's a mixed blessing. When Constantine made Christianity the official religion of the Roman Empire, it allowed something wonderful. Christians could travel freely wherever they wanted to go, and wherever they went, they started a church. That's the good side. Here's the dark side. They became upper class. They became affluent. They became politically extremely powerful. They didn't need the power of God anymore to do what they did. They didn't. They can succeed without it. And they did. (laughs) There's a story. I think it was um, St. Francis. Don't quote me, okay, because... My memory's getting old. But one of the, one of the saints who'd lived a, a tremendously godly life. Here's, here's how the Catholic Church handles um, new works of God, which threaten them. They persecute the guy for, for a while, and when he won't give up, they make him a, a head of a new order, and they incorporate him into the body of the church, and they let him do his thing kind of quietly at a distance. It's good. It works. It's a really good, it's a good thing, actually. Allows something to prosper. So I think it was um, St. Francis came to Rome. And the Pope, of course, welcomed him because they're going to make him a, they're going to give him a religious order. They're going to recognize him as a work of God. He's going to come under the umbrella and the protection of the church. And so the Pope says, let me show you around the Vatican. And he takes him down into the catacombs under the, the, the rooms under the Vatican and shows him all this wealth. Like there, there's riches under there. We're talking huge accumulation of gold and currency and precious things and art and stuff. And they're walking through and the Pope says to St. Francis, I think it was St. Francis, might not have been, but it doesn't matter. He says, so you see, Francis, the church can no longer, no longer say silver and gold have I none. And Francis turns to him and says, and neither can the church say pick up your bed and walk. Isn't that interesting? When we lose our dependency on God, we lose his power. 
when we become self-sufficient, we don't need him anymore. And pride sees to it that we'd like to keep it that way. And so the church enters a period of deadness. It's institutionalized. And it rolls along as an organization speaking about the power in the book without having the power in the book. And then things get, this, guys, this is really important. Pay attention. This is cyclical throughout church history. Not just in Israel, where you'll see this pattern lived out, but this is true in entire church history from the days of Acts on. The church starts out small and desperate. Small and desperate and hopeless, and it cries out to God. And it experiences an outpouring of the Spirit of God. And it begins to rise in power. And it begins to have a transformational effect upon the society it's in. And it, it ascends and ascends and ascends until it kind of reaches the peak. And then it flattens out and it becomes very apathetic. Because it's succeeded. It's winning. It takes all of that for granted. It dragged the world, society, up with it by virtue of its power and influence. So the first graph looks like this. That's the ascendancy of the church. And then its transformational effect on society drags society up, never as high as the church, because the society doesn't believe in, the, in God. But it's being influenced by the power of the church, its testimony, and its teachings. So society is, is, is transformed and brought up to a level just a little bit beneath uh, the church. And we call this a Christian country. Ready? Now... By this time, significant wealth and success and prestige and pride and everything has set into the church. So it begins a period of decline in influence, in passion, in, in uh, power. Doesn't do it anymore. Gifts aren't for today. Don't need holiness. Da, 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 da. It begins to crash. Now the world crashes very quickly and unwinds. And then they bottom out. The world always is worse than the church. You know, even when the church is terrible, the world will go way lower than the church. So now society is so corrupt and so foul and so depressing that the church is down there just a few inches above it. And the church becomes incredibly desperate. Oh, my God, where are you? And Israel was like this all the time. Oh, my God, where are you? And the church gets really frightened and really hungry, and it begins to be the church again. And it calls out to God and says, we are in deep trouble. We can't do this on our own. God, we need you. Where's your power? Oh, God, come back to us. And what does he do? He listens, and he comes back, and he starts to pour out his spirit. And the cycle starts all over again. And church history is this thing going on up to today. Now, would you like to tell me where in this country we are today? (laughs) I love that optimism. We're about, okay, we're going to get powerful, but it might be. I don't think we've reached the bottom yet. A lot of people say, oh, my God, we've reached the bottom. No, I don't think so. I think it's going to get a lot worse in this nation. It'll be a post-Christian country. And it'll stink. And, we'll, and there'll be a handful of Christians in this country that pray their guts out and beg God to start all over again. And he's going to come and start all over again. How high up it goes, I don't know. How long it lasts, I don't know. I just know this is the historic cycle of the church in society. Listen, thank you, Rachel. Society is nothing but a collection of individuals. Therefore, society reflects everything in human nature. And so when you go through a personal renewal, it's the same way, right? I don't need God. I'm fine. And God bless you. Enjoy your life until it falls apart. That's what I did. I enjoyed my nasty, secular, hedonistically ridden, won't go on, life. Until it no longer made me happy, and then it started to crash. Not, not on the outside, it crashed big time on the inside. When I got really desperate, got rid of the pride, and started to say, God, I've got to find something in this life. I mean, this is, my success is killing me. Literally, that's what was happening. My success was killing me. It was. And then you have a, then you have a revival. 
you come back to the Lord, you call out to him, and what happens? He starts to come like crazy, and your life starts to get rearranged, and you have peace that you never had before, you have joy you never had before, and you brag it all up to everybody, and you go through an extreme period of influence where all those around you see the change, and they go, oh my God, this is incredible. There must be a God. Mark Cowpersmith, sleazebag, wallet-extracting weasel lawyer, isn't like that anymore. There must be a God. That's what happened. A whole bunch of my friends got saved because it happened to him. Like miracle of miracles. That, I won't even say the words I use about myself. He became a Christian. What we have to watch is when that starts to happen and you're dragging them up with you, you get to a place of complacency. Hey, we're doing pretty good. This Christianity thing's working for me. Just like it should for me. Just a bunch of mini crashes and mini revivals we call a typical week. Seven days of alternating arrogance and humility. Of faith and despair. Man, we're a bunch of soap operas sitting here, right? (laughs) Any other comments? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We we uh, package Christianity as um, an insurance policy for heaven, and we package it as all of our problems will get solved in the first six months of becoming a Christian. So it's a man-centered message. It's all about me. So when we sell Christianity like this, what part of, of a person do we appeal to, the best part or the worst part? We appeal to the worst part. We say, I know all your selfish motivations. I have them too. Let me, tell, let me trick you into believing that once you become a Christian, it's still going to all be about you. And then we trick them into thinking it's all about them. And it goes, it's great for six months, but then a prayer goes unanswered. I prayed for healing for my aunt and she died. I prayed for a new job and I don't have it yet. And God's let me down. And they come and they use this phrase. I've heard this so many times. I can't stand it. Yeah, I was a Christian for a while, but it wasn't working for me. And I say, whoever lied to you and told you that the purpose of being a Christian was that it would work for you. You're working for God, you bonehead. You don't understand what it is to be a Christian. We don't follow him just because we get what we want. We follow him because he's God. Hello? And you're not. Hello? Shock of shocks. Right? You can't create disciples appealing to selfishness. And by the way, Jesus made it really clear he's not looking for converts. He's looking for disciples. And you can't create disciples by appealing to their selfishness. This doesn't work. We need to redefine Christianity to the present age. We're living in the most self-centered age in American history. The decades that we're in is perfectly self-centered. The selfishness that's rampant today would be shocking 30 years ago. Really? need to redefine this. Stop selling them another beauty product or a gym membership. Let's sell them the truth. Being a Christian's hard because being a Christian is coming into conflict with your own selfish nature. And without the power of God, you can't overcome your selfish nature. Let's just tell them the truth. And if they buy in great, we've probably begun a disciple. 
But the rest were converts, and they don't last very long. And honestly, I'm not sure if they're Christians at all. I'm pretty sure they're not. I'm pretty sure we've created whole generations of people that actually aren't Christians at all. They just think they are. Whoa, this got passionate. Anything else? Two more minutes. Comment or question? Yes. He's the line above the tops of the peaks. He's constant. And he's always trying to lift us back up to there. And he loves us and he forgives us. And he's not even mad at us. He simply wants us to live to the full potential of what it is to be filled with his spirit. Which is what this book is about. Living to your full potential. Not to realize your potential. But to realize his potential inside of your life. And inside of you. And we've got to keep that in mind for the book of Acts as we look at it. That's what this is all about. But it's exciting, people. And there isn't anything in that book that we can't see today. And most of it we've already seen. Many of us. Okay? We're done. If you want to come forward and receive some prayer, doesn't matter what the subject is. And just because it might be selfish doesn't mean we won't pray with you for it. (laughs) But we're not guaranteeing that you're going to get what you want. No, we all come with needs and we need to be open about it. If you've got a need, come and let's pray. We've seen some healings in the last week. Uh, Last couple of weeks we'll talk about later. Um, God's on the move. But come and receive prayer. And listen, if if this uh, message has moved you in some way, and you're saying, yeah, I want to be a disciple, not a convert, but I know I need help. You come forward, we'll lay hands on you, and we'll pray for help for that. Because that's God's bottom line plan for you. Okay? So team, come forward, and let's get ready to pray for people as they come. And if you need help, you come forward, and we're going to pray for you, all right? Don't be shy.